building a firm foundation. In most instances, mass even evangelism, I want to say evangelical there, and personal evangelism, as well as the preaching and teaching of the word of God is not being according, being done according to the biblical plans given to the church by the divine architect. Many who are engaged in the work of building the church are so engrossed, boy, I cannot read this morning, (laughs) in their own themes that they do not stop to consider if they are working according to God's divine directions or whether their work will pass his final scrutiny. This is from uh, Trevor McElwain, uh, Building on Firm Foundations. And so as you think about that, it kind of relates to what we were talking about with the offering. People can contrive things that they think that God wants and act in accordance with that when they are not in alignment with what God truly wants if it's not by the leading of the Holy Spirit. How many churches do you see out doing stuff all in the world where we see that the church is made for the building up of the saints and their churches are struggling, right? And they have individuals all throughout their churches that are struggling and they're outreaching to the unsaved. Well, build the church up then the uh, people within your church will be prepared to go out into the world and show the example of what Christ looks like. Uh, and so that was a very profound statement there by Trevor McElwain. And that brings us to our uh, topic for the, today as far as the sermon is concerned. Uh, we have the divine evidence, or divine, the word is stuck in my mind from <laughs> reading that a second ago. The evidence of faith being given for initial salvation. Now, this topic came up to me as I was teaching uh, a couple semesters ago in pistology on the gift of faith. And you know that faith is seen in many different ways in scripture. You have uh, the gift of faith. You have the spiritual gift of faith. You have faith for initial salvation. There's uh, many different impartations of faith that you see. But this gift of faith is an interesting one that I never knew that uh, people had issues with. And so (laughs) I grew up in a a sheltered environment, right? I've been under my father who was under teaching, and I grew up around that teaching all my life. So a lot of these different uh, doctrines and philosophies, I've never even understood them. And so I'm learning more and more by the day. And so people have an issue with you saying that faith was given to you to believe the facts of the gospel. Why? Because they say that is a Calvinistic point of view. A lot of people are looking with a blank stare of who is, what is Calvinistic? (laughs) Well, John Calvin broke off from the Catholic Church and had different viewpoints of what should be concerning the doctrine of salvation. And one of those Uh, It led to what we know as TULIP, right? Total depravity. Uh, Go ahead. Unconditional. L. Limited atonement. But the I, irresistible grace, that basically you and I are programmed to believe. There's nothing you could have done about it, right? It's all programmed. And so there was no responsibility of the individual in believing. And I would disregard that as well. 
Yet there are some that would put you in the category of a Calvinist if you believe that God gave you the gift of faith to believe the facts of the gospel. I say to that, that is in the words of Dr. Schaefer, hogwash, right? I believe that we are not very much involved in our salvation. If we could save ourselves, then what was the need of a savior? What was the need of Christ to come down if there was something that you could do to save yourselves? Now, we did react to what God gave us. He gave you this gift of faith, and you reacted to it and believed the facts of the gospel. But guess what? God chose you, and we can very easily point that out in Scripture. God gave you the gift of faith. We're going to see that today. And then guess what? Oh, whoop de doo <laughs> you believe the facts of the gospel. And I'm not trying to minimize what we did. I'm trying to maximize what God did. And if you believe that you had some role in that, we arrive at the place where Cain was, where many other people were throughout Scripture, where they thought that they had some responsibility to it. Right? Brother Don talked about Abraham this morning. And every time Abraham put his hands on something himself, guess what he did? He messed it up. Every time the children of Israel put their hands on something, what happened? They messed it up. Remember those, those famous words in Exodus chapter 19? All that God has said to do, we will do. So he gives them the law, and they proceed to mess it up over and over and over again. And I want to get out of our minds that we have any role in doing anything but reacting to what God has already done. There is nothing else that we can do, right? This guy just talked about building on a firm foundation, Trevor McElwain. What does scripture tell us about building a foundation? If we build anything else on the foundation and that which was already laid, we're going to mess it up. Just like anybody else that tried to do that. So we can't, we can't contrive salvation, we can't make up our own salvation, not at the beginning, not in the present tense, and not in the future. It's been God, by God, by grace, through faith, all the way. He started it, as it says over in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, He who began a good work in you will perform it until the day of Christ Jesus. It was never us. It's not about us. Hate the... Pop any bubbles? I know the bubbles aren't going to be popped here. You guys are all fine, but I'm just teaching a lesson. But it's not us. It has nothing to do with us, right? It has everything to do with him. And so as we read through Ephesians chapter 6, I'm going to clarify something here because a good point uh, was made and something that was presented to me, and yet it doesn't change the fact that God gave you the gift of faith to believe. And we don't only see that here, we're going to see it in a couple different spots in Scripture as we read through. Let's bow in a word of prayer. Father, we're grateful uh, for this day and uh, grateful for the grace that you did provide. Uh, grateful that uh, it, it's beyond us because we are incapable of, of doing anything to save ourselves. And yet we are not robots. So we're not completely inactive in what we've done, but we've responded to what you already did. 
And so we're uh, grateful that you uh, have given this to us and that uh, uh, we can act in this present life uh, based on the work that your son accomplished. And it didn't just stick specifically for our initial salvation, but it powers us through our present salvation uh, and into the future. And so we pray that as we uh, look at these things and we continue to study them, that they might be clear in our minds, that we might have uh, opportunity to answer uh, any of those people that might be uh, struggling with, with any of these topics. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. All right, and so uh, what does the Bible teach about the gift of faith? We were over in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8. And go back with me there. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8. And he says there something similar to what he said in verse 5. And we're going to look at this and and break it down. But uh, he says in verse 8, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the free gift of God. And so very clearly he says, you are, by grace, you are uh, one standing as having been saved. You don't see this as clear with the translation uh, uh, the way that it is, but there's a construction called a periphrastic present here that's really emphasizing the condition of these Ephesian saints that Paul is writing to. You are in a state of having been saved. If it were just this, where's our marker here? If we were looking at this simply you have a verb and a participle. You, no, that's not going to work. <laughs> the black one. This one? Okay. Verb, you are. This is all in one uh, word in the Greek. And so you have you are here. Uh, Sorry for my bad writing. And so the verb expresses their current condition. In the present, you are saved, right? But the participle says they are having been saved. And so what it means is at a point in time, you were saved, and there are abiding results that go into the present of you having been saved. So I think what he's doing here is expressing the fact of the completeness of their salvation, right? This flies in the face of anyone that says you can lose your salvation because it doesn't work that way. Again, you didn't save yourselves. God saved you through the work of Christ. And so at a point in time, God applied that work that Christ accomplished to you. And guess what? You stand as one that has been saved. God no longer sees you as who you were prior to salvation. We might see ourselves like that, right? We might conduct ourselves like that, but that's not who God sees. Because if God had to see that, you would have to go back to what he looks at earlier there in the chapter of who you were prior to salvation, and we're going to do that. God is seeing you in a perpetual condition of being one that has been saved. And so past, present, future, sealed, done. You are saved. And this is how he's looking at you. Um, 
in contrast with the existence of the believer prior to salvation. And so as you look at the current state that he's talking about, it's contrasted to what you see in the previous verses. Go back with me to verse 1. Now this, we've been here before, and as you're looking at uh, Paul and what he's talking about here, this first part of chapter 2 is in strong contrast <clears throat> to what you see in chapter 1. He goes on and on talking about the things that we have as a result of grace and what God has provided to us in Christ Jesus. And then he comes to chapter two. Guess what? You could get carried away if that chapter two wasn't there, right? You could say, well, God has given me all of this. I'm blessed with all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. I'm pretty good to go. Well, he wants to remind you of who you were prior to salvation and the capabilities that you still have if you're not living in Christ. In verse 1 it says, And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. You see, your conditions prior to salvation is that we were spiritually dead in consequence to the work of Adam and each one of us being born from him. And that work of Adam being logically placed to you by God. And so uh, we can also see that Adam's unrighteousness is counted to everyone. And so if we went over to uh, Romans chapter 5 and verse 12, we would see that. We're going to go there later, so I won't do, excuse me, do it now. Uh, we see that the uh, existence of the believer prior to salvation was directed by the headship of darkness in verse 2. It says, where in times past you walked according to the course, and that word for course is really our word for age, the age belonging to the world. And you could say strictly the world system. And we're going to see why here in a second. According to the prince of the authority of the air, the spirit that now works in the children of disobedience. And so a lot was said there in just one verse. We see that the walk of the believer prior to salvation was dictated by the age. And as you look at the age, what age is he talking about? Go with me over to Galatians chapter 1 and verse 4. Galatians chapter 1 and verse 4. Pick it up in verse 1. He says there, Paul, an apostle, not of men, neither by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead. And all the brethren which are with me unto the churches of Galatia, grace is to you and peace from God the Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil, not world there, but age, this present evil age, according to the will of God and our Father, to whom is glory forever and ever. Amen. You see, as you see, and we will develop here in Ephesians chapter 2, we are looking at an organized system of evil. And you can look in this world and find unsaved people that don't seem so bad, right? You can see people that are up here in elevated positions that seem like, ah, oh, they're not so bad. But what we're going to see is if you're not a believer, you have the opportunity to have your life directed and dictated, especially those who are at the top, 
by Satan. This is his world system, right? And he's dictating and manipulating <coughs> to get the outcomes that he desires. He's in complete control over it. And so we look at things sometimes and say, well, why is this happening? Or why is that happening? Well, there's a reason for that, right? And we'll see this. But we see this present evil age is the one that is arranging and organizing how unsaved people dictate their uh, lives and conduct themselves. The walk prior to salvation was dictated according to the structure of Satan, who is called the prince of the authority of the air. And so as you look at this organized system and look at who's at the top of it, it's almost like a pyramid structure, right? You see Satan at the top. He has his spirit beings that are under him that are dictating what he desires to do. And then guess what he has under that? He has another layer. There are mature sons of Satan. You wonder how some of these people get the positions that they're in. How are some of these people elevated or come from this place where this person couldn't get there? Well, <laughs> as a pastor likes to say a lot of times, they had a little help, right? <laughs> they had a little help in getting there. Last one, we see the walk prior to salvation is reinforced by Satan's icons. And so read with me in, in verse 2. It says, where in times past you walk according to the age of this world, according to the prince of the authority of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons. Important distinction here. Not children. Children simply means in scripture when we see it that you're born from another person. This goes deeper than that. This speaks to a place of position and privilege. Huyas. It's our word for sons. And so in, in a uh, culture, if ours was run kind of like ones have been run in the past, it was very important that you had a son because that's who you pass things on to, right? And just like you and I are seen as the sons of God and placed in the place of being mature in Christ, these have been placed in a position of privilege under Satan. And so that word is not children, that word is sons, the sons of disobedience. And as you look at that uh, a word for disobedience here, it has the idea of, of uh, being unpersuaded, not being able to be persuaded by anything. And we've often, a lot of us teachers have talked about this. What does that word exactly mean? Does that mean that these people could never possibly be saved? I don't know. I've never been able to come up with the answer. You, maybe either one of you guys have the answer. I know Brother Dan did some work on this, this topic. <laughs> but they are unpersuadable, not able to be persuaded. And they are mature sons uh, of that unpersuasion. Now, in verse 3, we see that we were in a condition where we were continually and perpetually desiring after the things of the flesh. That was all that we sought for, among whom also we had all we all had our conversation in times past or back then in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And we're by nature, the children, this one here is our really our word for children or born ones of wrath, even as others. So guess what? <laughs> In our condition prior to salvation, in the condition that exists for everyone that is not saved, you are born into wrath. 
Whereas if you are not saved out of that condition, you are going to face the wrath of God. Not a pretty picture, is it, so far? Any of you guys in agreement? That, I think everyone's in agreement. Okay. This was not a pretty picture of who we were before, right? We were in the same boat with all of those who were unsaved. And so if we ever wanted to elevate ourselves because of what we have now, because of what he describes in chapter one, the greatness of the salvation provided to us by God, by grace, through faith, through his son, Jesus Christ. Guess what? You can bring yourself back down and be humble because this is what we were prior to salvation. And if God had not intervened, it wouldn't have been good for us. But guess what? Verse four. But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love, wherewith he loved us. But God, God intervened by use of his mercy, which is an aspect of his love. You want to use John 3.16? Adeline was just uh, reading through that verse with us on the way here to church. Shocked me. She saw it on, a, uh, on one of the puzzles that she was looking at and went right to it in her Bible and read it to us. You want to read that verse and have it be relevant to where we are? Well, here's where it's relevant. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that who should ever believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Who is that whoever? That whoever is the ones that believe. Everyone, the one that believing. You and I that are sitting in this room that have believed the facts of the gospel we are the recipients of the gift provided by God. And you see this in this context. And so in, in verse 4, he says, But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love, wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in uh, sins, hath quickened us together with Christ, by grace you are saved. Remember we said, you are having been saved in the condition of having been saved. He says it here too in verse 5 and reemphasizes it in verse 8. You stand as ones that are in a position of having been saved. Not by what you can do, all by what God has done through his son, Jesus Christ. Verse 6. And hath raised us up together and made us to sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. What is this? We're looking at God's reckoning of what was accomplished by spirit baptism. And so one asks, do you need to be baptized? Well, no, you don't need to be baptized to be saved. Not physically, <laughs> but you better have been spiritually baptized if you're saved, right? Because what took place in the spiritual realm is what's being symbolized by this physical baptism. God took you out of who you were in the world through the Holy Spirit and placed you into Christ so that now you have an identity with Christ, complete and forever. That as you go over to Romans chapter 6, it says that you were so intimately tied to the work of Christ that God can look at you just like he looks at the sun. What is the song we used to sing back at Valley? In the beloved, except in am I, risen, ascended, and seated on high, saved from all sin through his infinite grace. 
with the redeemed ones accorded a place. You see, all of us, doesn't matter who you are, doesn't matter what gender you are, doesn't matter what color you are, doesn't matter what age you are, doesn't matter what good or bad that you've done, God sees us all the same in Christ. He looks at his right hand and he sees us in Christ as a result of the work accomplished by his son. And so as you come to verse or uh, verse eight, he says, for by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the free gift of God. And so what is the method of salvation? We see that the believer was saved by the father, by instrument of his grace and through the intermediate agency of your faith that was given to you, we're going to see. And so, if there was a wall, and this wall is salvation, I'm doing this on the fly, so I hope I get it right. (laughs) The wall is salvation. This is you before salvation. This is you after faith is the thing that took you from here to over here, right? And guess what? You didn't just derive that faith on your own. You didn't just decide one day, oh, I'm tired of not believing. Today, I'm going to believe the facts of the gospel of what Christ did on my behalf. Because guess what? If you had done that, again, you're a lot responsible for your own salvation. You had something to do with it. Now, you did have the reaction, and I like to use the pastor's example because it's a really good one, of the day that he was going around with my oldest son, Braylon, right? And they're working out in the yard. Doing a lot of work. He's giving them little tasks here and there. And Braylon's just sweating away because he wants Gatorade or whatever it was that he was going to provide him. You see, my, my father likes to bribe children. <laughs> he does it often. But they carried a big, big log, right, across the yard. And Braylon had his hands on it, his little bitty hands. He was only about six, six years or so. And he said, boy. Grandpa, we really worked hard today, didn't we? Well, that's what it's like for you and I. We really worked hard for our salvation, didn't we? No, we didn't do anything. The work was all God's through Christ. So that when he said on the cross, it is finished. It was truly finished. Everything is provided for you. All you have to do is respond to the faith that was given to you. And we're going to see that moving forward. And so by God, by grace, through faith, salvation is by direct instrument of grace. And salvation is through the intermediate agency of faith. The origin, salvation by grace through faith is not generated by the believer. And salvation by, uh, faith, by or through faith is the free gift from God. This free gift and this word uh, that we see um, here uh, specifying this idea of of the gift of God uh, we want to look at this idea of free and uh, free gift go with me a couple other places where it's used 
And go with me over to James chapter 1 and verse 17. James chapter 1 and verse 17. Now James gets into some interesting conversations regarding faith and works. And if we had more time, I would spend some time there as well. Uh, but we're not going to to go there today. We just want to look at uh, this idea of the gift of uh, uh, or this word for free gift being utilized. And so he comes off of talking about this process of sin and, and he's going to contrast what comes from God from what comes from these thoughts that are in your mind. Pick it up in verse 12. He says, Blessed is the man that endures temptation, for when he is tried, he shall receive a crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. Let no man say when he is tempted that I am tempted from God. How many times have you heard people say, well, God is allowing this to happen, right? And it's some bad thing, or God has caused this. How many stories have you seen these old movies and stuff where they say, God caused this to happen? This is Greek mythology kind of stuff, right? Uh, kill this guy because he did such and such a thing, because God is, is the one that caused this. Well, it says here that no man, when they're tempted, can say that they're tempted from God. Why? For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his very own lust and enticed. Right? There's something going around in your mind. You have a lot of thoughts that go through your mind, right? On any particular day. Some come in your mind and you're like, eh. I don't have anything to do with that. Some come in your mind and you say, yeah, that's interesting, but you don't want to do it. But there are other thoughts that come in your mind and you say, hmm, well, that would be nice, right? And this thing might not be right to do. But you say, hmm, what would it be like? And you start making, remember, we talked about imaginations last year at the conference. You start doing a physical or a mental projection of what it would look like to accomplish that thing in your mind, right? You play out all of the scenarios. And so this is where that is. You're drawn away and enticed. This lust is intriguing to you. You're thinking about the possibilities of what it would look like to do this. In verse 15, then when the lust has conceived, it brings forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, brings forth death. And so you can get all the way up to a place where and we could add uh, the trespass into this, where you've decided, hey, this is nice enough, a nice enough thing that I'm going to do it. Right. And now you're just looking for the opportunity to carry out whatever this thing is. At the point that you actually carry it out, now it has gone from a temptation to actually being sin, right? And when sin is conceived, it brings forth what? Death. Now, have any of you sinned and just fell dead on the spot? I see all of you sitting here in the room, and I'm assuming that you probably all sinned at a point in time. So that's probably not the case, right? It's not physical death. It's spiritual death. You are ones that have been reinstated to a place where you have a relationship with God. He has revived you through the work of his son, Jesus Christ. And now you are in connection and having life with God. But when we sin, what happens? You break that connection. So what is the solution to that? 
John tells us over in 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9. You confess your sin. <laughs> and then you're restored back to the right relationship with God. And there's no more to it than that. Verse 16, he says, Do not err, my beloved brethren. Every good gift, this idea of, of uh, uh, a good free gift, and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. And so this idea of a free gift, every good and perfect gift that has nothing attached to it, right? Some people give you stuff and they expect something in return. That is not what this is. Some people do things for you and they say, well, I'm not telling you you need to do this. But the next time in their minds, next time you don't do something for me, I'm going to remember back to the time that I did this certain thing. That's not a free gift, right? There's some strings attached to that. This gift has the idea of there's nothing attached to it. I'm just giving you this thing and that's it. You have it. You take it. And every good and perfect gift comes from above. Over in Romans chapter 3 and verse 24, we see the justification of the believer is freely given by God's grace. Ephesians chapter 3. Romans. Romans. <laughs> I got Ephesians on the brain. It wouldn't be a Sunday if I didn't do it once. Either I lose my spot in the Bible or go to the wrong chapter or say the wrong thing. And pick it up in verse 21. Now remember our uh, structure of the book of Romans is an argument that's being built that there are none that are righteous. So he takes a chapter, he looks at the Gentiles in times past of whom these Romans, some of these Romans are, and he says, not righteous. He goes to chapter 2, describes some things about Israel. Guess what? You're not righteous. Comes to chapter 3 and summarizes there is none righteous, no, not one. And so how can we reach the level of being righteous? It must be imparted to you. And so in verse 21, we see, But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Christ, or in Christ, unto all and upon all that believe. For there is no difference. For all of sin, and really here it says, come short. I'm going to paint a worse picture for you. All of sin and keep on coming up short of the glory of God. That's what the, this present tense of this word means in the Greek uh, of the glory of God. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. You see that word for freely? It means that this was given to you. And there's no strings attached to it. Right? You have been declared righteous by God, by his grace, through the work of his son, Jesus Christ. And there's nothing that you could do to earn or deserve it. Right? Freely. This word for freely. Very interesting. And so, theoretically, one could be saved... And one could do nothing else good after that salvation. Never act on anything that you've been provided in Christ. And guess what? He's probably going to bring you home. We see another scripture. 
But there would be one thing that you still have. You still have salvation. Right? It's not you. It's him. It's him from start to finish. Even when you're walking in the works that he has laid out for you, it's by the leading of the Holy Spirit. It's by you reacting to who you are in Christ. That's how you're able to conduct yourself. And so, uh, again, from start to finish, it's him and salvation. Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 7, we see there's uh, the free gift of service to God uh, provided by his grace. Not providing, but provided. Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 7. And pick it up in uh, verse four. He says, whereby when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of, of the Christ, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men as, is, is, as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the spirit, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ by the gospel, whereof I am made a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given unto me by the effectual working of his power. You see here, Paul's saying that he's operating in his service to God by the use of his spiritual gift, not under his power, right? It's the effectual working of the power of God. And so this idea of being freely given to him uh, is seen there as well as a free gift from God. And so could the free gift uh, be the salvation by grace through faith? One of the arguments I saw, um, and I'll uh, thank Aaron uh, Brand for this. One of the arguments I saw given against this gift of faith is that there is, when you look in the Greek, if you have a noun, like we're going to see here, it's supposed to tie to a particular antecedent, Right. A word that compares to that particular word in uh, case, in number, and in gender. And so, uh, if you had this thing, what is the gender there? Anybody want to take a gander at it? If you're a thing, are you uh, feminine, masculine, neuter? Neuter. (laughs) There's a pastor. Um, And so maybe we have some things existing in the world today, but most people, uh, scientifically speaking, are either male or female. If we're talking about a thing, we're talking about an inanimate object or an idea. And this is what we see as we go back over to Ephesians chapter 2 and picking it up in verse 8. And so as he says, for by grace are you saved through faith and that. See that word that in the Greek? This is the word for this thing, speaking specifically of something nearly tied to what he's talking about here. Now, I have to honestly say, as you go back in the text, there is nothing that this ties directly to. There is nothing that agrees to it in uh, gender, in case, and in number. So it's left to the interpretation as to what the writer was talking about when he says this thing. And so the argument of some would be, well, it ties directly to, for by grace are you saved through faith. It doesn't tie directly to faith. 
if it tied directly to faith, they said, then it would tie to it in number, uh, case, and in um, gender. Now, you could take that argument and say that it does tie to the, uh, this phrase, if I'm being honest, by grace, uh, through faith, you are saved. And yet, I'm going to show you something here as we teach through it of why I would still say that this relates to the gift of faith. And so the teaching of the gift of faith is that based on the identification of that as this thing, that uh, based on this knowledge, the believer has an inability to respond to God due to spiritual death. And so this thing would tie directly to uh, faith. But uh, we see in the context, excuse me, this inability to respond to God uh, based on spiritual death. And so if you went back to Ephesians chapter two and verse one, what does it say? Who were we prior to salvation? Were any of us in any condition to respond on faith to who God was and what God has done? Any of you guys see that? I see where it says that we were spiritually dead, right? Now, I've heard some people say, well, physical death is not the same as spiritual death. You can respond when you're spiritually dead, right? Well, how do you spiritually respond to a spiritual God when you are spiritually disconnected from who he is, right? Upon what basis can you respond to him? I would argue there is no basis. I cannot respond to God upon the basis of my own volition and my own desires when I am spiritually dead. And this is the condition that we were saved out of, if you go back. Look me over further evidence over to Romans chapter 5 and verse 12. And the interesting thing here that's laid out is a contrast between the work of Adam, which is uh, reckoned to the believer, or to, to all men, and the work of Christ, which undid that work that Adam did. And pick it up in verse 12. Chapter? Uh, chapter 5 of Romans. And in fact, let's go back just a little further to verse 10. Final, final move there. No, no more uh, moving around. In verse 10, it says, For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only so, but we also joy in God through, her, uh, uh, through our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, by whom we have now received the atonement. This word for atonement is our word for reconciliation. Verse 12. Wherefore, as by one man, sin entered into the world, and death by sin. Now, what does it say back in Genesis? Now, if you read the English in Genesis, you would only see just death. If you eat of this fruit, what will happen? What's the uh, outcome of eating from that fruit? You will die. But in the Hebrew, if our brother Don was here, he could express it even more clearly. Dying, you will be caused to die. You're not just going to die physically. We didn't see uh, Eve or Adam eat of the fruit and they dropped dead on the spot. Though we know they eventually came to the spot where they died. 
There was something that happened immediately after they ate from that fruit. And it was shown physically in the fact that you see in verse 6, it says they were what? Stripped. Stripped. We see naked and we just think, oh, naked, they don't have any clothes on. No, they were stripped of something. And as we see that they were created in the image of, or Adam was created in the image of God, what does God exist in? Light. They were stripped of light. And so that's why they were running around and now being seen as naked. And so there were immediate indications that they were separated from God. Right? What is death? Everybody that's been coming here knows this. Death is separation of some kind. Right? When you die, you are separated. Your uh, inanimate parts of you that can't be seen are separated from that body. You've been to a funeral and seen those bodies laying for you there. I don't like going to funerals because as you look at that body, it strikes me that that body is completely lifeless. Right? It doesn't hit you the same when you hear that someone died and you think, okay, they're not here again. I have to adjust myself to the fact that they're not here. But when you go and see that body laying in the coffin, there's something about looking at a body, to me, I don't know about everybody else, but it, it's completely lifeless. It's not like us sitting here today, right? Now, there's some people that people might say, hey, they, <laughs> they look dead while they're living. <laughs> living as though they're dead, right? But there's nothing like seeing a body laying in a grave that's lifeless. Now, as you think about death being physical separation from the body, what is spiritual death? But your spirit being disconnected or separated from God. And so what, was Adam, what were Adam and Eve when they sinned? And they immediately, spiritually, were separated from God. And he put them out of his garden. And so as you come over here in the, to chapter 12, keep that in mind. And he says, uh, and so death, in verse 12, passed upon all men for that all have sinned. He didn't say that you all have sinned in your individual actions. Again, here's where the Greek comes to be important. He says all sinned at a point in time, specific point in time. And I would argue to that, that the point in time was when Adam sinned. God counted all of what Adam did to all of those that came after him. And we're all caught up in that. Nasty, huh? You want to go back and punch Adam in the stomach or <laughs> do something to him? No, you would have done the exact same thing if you had been in his shoes. Verse 13, for until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who was the figure of him that was to come. You didn't believe me when I said in verse 13 that this was imparted to us. Then why were people dying after or between Moses or Adam and Moses? It's proof of the fact that that Adamic sin was passed on to everyone that came after him. Right. And so we could read on there, but we'll be back in this this area here in a bit. Uh, The objection to the teaching of the gift of faith. Again, it says that this thing does not 
have a specific antecedent, uh, which is that agreement in case, number, and gender. This thing, therefore, is logically ties to the statement, by grace you were saved through faith. Um, and the objection stems from the argument against Calvinism and its fight against irresistible grace. I don't believe that we are robots, and I am not preaching that from this pulpit, right? I don't believe that. <laughs> I don't believe that God just specifically pulled you out, and we said, I am going to believe now, go after that certain path. There was a reaction that each one of us had to the facts of the gospel. But what I am arguing is that God gave you the faith that you needed to believe because we were spiritually dead and didn't have the ability to generate it on our own. So as God did the heavy lifting, he gave us a little bit there to do on our own. Right. And we see that here. The refinement of the teaching of the gift of faith. Faith is necessary for the realization of salvation in present tense. It is impossible for you to operate in any part of your salvation apart from faith. Now, I see a lot of people wanting to do it a lot of times. They don't in, in, in word want to do it, but in action, they want to operate outside of faith, right? Oh, I think God wants me to do such and such a thing, so I'm going to go and do this. Well, how about you just wait and allow God to lead you by the Holy Spirit to what he wants you to do? That's faith. Oh, we don't have enough to build our church the size that we want our church to be. So let's go out and let's do this and let's do that to generate money. Right? Not that God's going to bring the right individuals along into your church and cause it to be the size that he desires for it to be. Right? You have to operate on faith if you're going to be effective in your Christian life. We see the accounting of the things uh, the believer has or was given at salvation is understood upon the basis of faith. Go back with me over to Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 5. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 5. So after that uh, music to your ears kind of verse uh, verse 4 where God intervened, it says, even when we were dead in sins, hath he quickened us together with Christ. By grace, you are saved, or you are in a condition of having been saved. In verse 6, we see the resulting position of the believer can only be understood upon the basis of faith as it doesn't exist in a physical reality. Verse 6, and hath raised us up together, and made us to sit together, where? In heavenly places, in Christ Jesus. I see several people in this room, and I don't see any of you physically sitting in heaven at this moment. Right? And I've said that before. Who's physically sitting in heaven? Is this an aberration? Maybe I'll go touch somebody and it's going to be a ghost or <laughs> a hologram of some kind. Right? No, you're physically sitting in this room. But as all of you have believed the facts of the gospel, God is counting you as sitting together with him 
at his right hand, where? In Christ. Why do we talk about in Christ? Why do we talk about position? Why do we say that that's so important? Because you hear it over and over and over again throughout Scripture, right? And here's a very important spot where this is reckoned. This is something that's going on in the mind of God. Do you count it to be true? Do you have faith to believe that this is true? That you are actually seated while you are here at the right hand of God? God who calls those things that aren't as though they were, right? Or do we just see reality through our own limited minds? I think we have to put our faith in an unlimited God. In verse 7, we see the future implications of Christ's work through the believers must be taken upon the basis of faith. It says that in the ages to come, he might show forth the exceeding riches of his grace by his kindness towards us. Where? It says through Christ Jesus, but it's really in Christ Jesus. So in the future, he's going to be continually working things through us. Where? In Christ Jesus. Do you know that that's going to happen? Do you see that as a present reality? That's something in the future. And so what are we doing? We're placing faith in something that God has said is true. And we're trusting that a God that's over and over and over again throughout the Old Testament all the way up till now has proven himself to be what? True. And we understand that scripture says that God cannot lie. And so we're basing what he's saying here, this promise that is being made to us, we're placing faith in that promise that these things are going to happen in the future. And then in verse 8, we see the foundation of the believer's salvation from start to finish is faith. He says, for by grace are you in a state of having been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the free gift from God. Right? He provided you the faith from start to finish. Now, if it were just here, you could make an argument that possibly, I think I've made a decently compelling argument that faith is necessary at initial salvation in order for you to believe. But I'll give you a little bit more. Let's go a little bit further. Go with me over to Philippians chapter 1 and verse 29. Now we see that here faith is not stated as a free gift. It's stated as a Grace gift, a charisma. Anybody have any relatives or friends named charisma? No? <laughs> I've seen a couple charismas. This is where it comes from, a grace gift, something given from grace. Philippians chapter 1 and verse 29. And pick it up at uh, verse 25, or verse 24, excuse me. He says there, nevertheless, to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. So remember, Paul is talking about this juxtaposition of his desires as opposed to God's desires. What does Paul desire? He has seen the Lord in the flesh. And I think he's seen him by now twice and had two different interactions with him after his resurrection, not to mention the ones he might have had with him while he was here. And he's saying, you know what? That guy's all right. <laughs> I might want to go and spend some more time with him. 
And so his desire is to be where? With him. But he understands that according to the plan of God, it is God's desires for him to be here. And it's more needful for these believers that Paul is here in the flesh. And so he says, nevertheless, to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. And having this confidence, I know that I shall abide and continue with you all for the furtherance and joy of faith, that your rejoicing may be more abundant in Jesus Christ for me by my coming again to you. Only let not your conversation be as becometh, or let your conversation be as becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, and in nothing terrified by your adversaries, which is to them an evident token of perdition, but to you salvation and that of God. This sounds a lot like the pastor's favorite verse over there in Second Thessalonians, right? They're, they're doing these things to you, and it's a, a, a token, it's proof of the fact of why these things are going to befall them in the future. Verse 29, for unto you it is given. Take note of that word for given. In behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. You see, Paul is expressing something. He's writing from jail in this epistle. And he's expressing something to them. That in believing the facts of the gospel, a couple things have been given to you that you might not want. Well, one that you want, (laughs) the other that you probably don't want, right? The first, it has been given to you to believe. Graciously given. Does that sound like faith? It sounds like the verbal form of faith to me. I don't know about you guys, but I won't say that I'm a a grammar Uh, professor or anything like that. But as I look at the word for believe, it is the active form of the word for faith. Right? It has been graciously given to you not only to believe on him, but also to suffer on behalf of him. What does that sound like? Sounds to me like he's saying, by grace you've been provided the gift to believe. Right? And this is what we see uh, relating to what we saw before. And so believing, uh, faith, and suffering uh, were graciously given to the believer at a point in time. And so what you don't see is there in the Greek, again, this is expressing, not currently, but at a point in time, this grace was given to you to believe on him and to suffer. Right? And so uh, you see that initial salvation aligns with the time frame in the context. And that would be my translation of it. At initial salvation, you were provided the opportunity both to believe and in the plan of God to suffer on his behalf. And so the grace gift um, uh, is extended there. Now, there is a connection between uh, grace gifts and free gifts that we see over in Romans chapter 5 in verse 12, back where we were. Go with me back over there. And really, a little bit further in verse 15 is where we actually see it begin, I believe. Romans chapter 5. 
Those pages don't want to come apart. Uh, verse 5, and yeah, pick it up at verse 15. I think that's where we left off. And so remember, the, the previous verse uh, looked at the fact that people continued to die after uh, Adam. And so between Adam and Moses, before the giving of the law, uh, people continued to die. And it wasn't that their sin was counted against them, their individual sin, is that they were born into Adamic sin. And so in verse 15 it says, but not as the offense or the trespass, so also is the free gift. And so this word for uh, gift here, here is actually our word for charisma. And so it wouldn't be free gift, but grace gift. For if through the offense of one, many be dead, much more uh, the grace gift of God uh, and the gift of uh, and the gift by grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, has abounded unto many. And so, in verse fifteen, we see the grace gift from God is contrasted with the trespass uh, of Adam and the provision of the free gift from Jesus Christ. And so, both impacted many. As you look at the work that Adam accomplished, the terrible work that he did in eating that fruit after God had forbid it. It was passed to all men. So it took someone else to come after the similitude of Adam to undo that work. And so as you think about it, this is all happening in the reckoning of God, God the Father. Um, In verse 16, we also see that um, I've lost my place here. Give me one second. I'll catch up. Uh, the free gift is provided or provides an opportunity to combat the sin of Adam through the grace, gracious gift that is imparted uh, in righteousness. Verse 16, it says, and not as it was by or really there through one that sinned. So is the free gift for the judgment was by one to condemnation. But the free gift uh, and that's our word for grace gift is of many offenses unto justification. Right. And so by the free gift given to us and the work that Christ accomplished, we have graciously been provided or imparted the righteousness of Christ. And in verse uh, 17 is our last verse. We see the free gift ties directly to the work of Christ. For if by one's man, one man's trespass, death reigned by one, much more they which receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness shall reign uh, in life by one. And you could say there, even Jesus Christ. It's him, right? It's him that's accomplished the work from start to finish. And so as we uh, look lastly here, where uh, there is not faith, there is works. And so wherever you're uh, expressing that an individual can do something apart from faith, he's doing it by works. Go with me over to Romans chapter 9 and verse 30. And so I saw the argument in this that um, people can believe or, or uh, contrive faith on their own because faith is not a work. Um, well, here we have a very clear statement where there is not faith or where you're not operating out from faith, you're operating out from works. Uh, pick it up in 
Let's go back to verse 22. This is a very interesting chapter here. And as you're looking at it and thinking back through um, Israel and the, the opening of this chapter is how uh, Paul is expressing his desire to see Israel saved. And he gives these many examples of how God is choosing individuals out. And I've told you before, it took me a long time. This is one of the hardest subjects in scripture for me to come to grips with and take away what I desire scripture to say and really let scripture say what it says. Because who of human origin wants to see other individuals not saved? Right? And as a kid, I desired for everybody in the world to be saved. Right? But you have to come to grips with the fact that God chose some individuals and not everybody is going to believe. It's just... Uh, the way it is, as they say. Pick it up in verse 22. He says, What if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he had afore prepared unto glory, even us whom he hath called, not of Jesus only, but also of the Gentiles. As he say also in, in, in uh, really here you could say Hosea, it says Osi, I will call them my people, which were not my people, and her beloved, which was not beloved. And it shall come to pass that in the place where it was said unto them, you are not my people, there shall they be called the children of the living God. Isaiah also crieth concerning Israel, though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, a remnant shall be saved. For he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness, because a short work will the Lord make of, upon the people of the earth. Uh, and uh, as Isaiah said before, except the Lord of Sabaoth hath left us a seed, we had been as Sodom and had been made like unto Gomorrah. What shall we say then that the Gentiles, which followed not after righteousness, have obtained righteousness, even the righteousness which is out from faith? You see, they attained it not by works, it's by faith. Right? And if you were to attain something out from uh, any other measure, you're doing it by works. And so as you come over into Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8, are we to say that when we believe the facts of the gospel, we did it on our own? Because if you did, you did it out from works. And it was not out from the accomplished work of Jesus Christ. You know, we can uh, have a lot of differences of understanding of a lot of scripture. And I think it's incumbent upon us as teachers uh, to always be studying and reaffirming different things that we've seen in Scripture. Now, this one really challenged me to be honest with the text, right, and what the text was truly saying. But at the end of digging through that, I come to the same conclusion that God gave to us to believe, right? We didn't do it on our own. And if we had any part in it that was directed by us then it's not his work anymore it's our work and as you can see throughout scripture when people have tried to do things on their own what has happened <laughs> they mess it up 
I like how uh, Dr. Pastor Dave put it uh, many times. Take your grubby little hands off God's salvation. It's not yours, right? We only, in time, react to what he's already done. We only, at initial salvation, reacted to what his son already accomplished. And the gift of faith, I think, is essential, an essential doctrine to that understanding. If you get it wrong there, you're going to think that there's some reaction that you have in your present in salvation. And guess where that leads? At future salvation, there's going to be something you're going to be doing then as well. Well, guess what? I think all the way out into the future, and we saw it there in Ephesians chapter 7, God's going to be working things through us. It's not us saying, hey, God, what do you think about us doing this, this and that? And then him acquiescing to what we desire to happen. That's not how it works. His salvation is his plan. It's his son that accomplished it. It's his Holy Spirit that leads us into everything that he desires for us to do. May we be ones that are reacting in accordance with his plan. Let's find a word of prayer. Father, we're grateful for this day and um, grateful for the times that we're able to uh, be challenged in scripture and to uh, tear it apart and to uh, look deeply into those things that your word truly says. Um, the Greek language is an, uh, an amazing language and very exacting, but there is opportunity sometimes where it's going to leave for us to put together what we know about scripture and to tie those things in uh, with other things to see what the truth truly is. And it's uh, your spirit that's doing the leading. It's uh, you that's come up with the plan, and it's your son uh, that's made all of these things possible. So we uh, desire to be ones that are, are in alignment with what you desire for us to do uh, and to know and to teach. And so we pray that that would be the case, not just for us to teach, but for those of us that uh, have the opportunity to hear and to put these things into action in the present tense. We're grateful uh, for each one of these, your children uh, that are in this room, even those that are listening online and the opportunities that we have uh, to live out lives that are well pleasing to you. And we pray that we be doing so for it's in your son's name we pray. Amen.